Hello, everyone. Welcome to Radically Loved Radio. I wanted to create a place where people can go to to get inspired, get motivated, or find some clarity and get tools to create a radically loved life. I will do my best to provide information on a variety of subjects, including yoga, holistic health, life coaching, spirituality, meditation, and overall mindful living. Each episode will bring you some of the world's best spiritual leaders, entrepreneurs, yoga teachers, coaches, along with some of my closest friends, and we will talk about their life experiences and journeys to create something more out of their lives and how they continue to grow to make that happen. Thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Radically Loved. We are here live in the studio today at Mod Pod. What I've been waiting for for months, it feels years almost. It's been such a long time since we've actually been in the studio. And not only are we live in the studio, but we have an in-studio guest today, which I'm so excited to introduce to you all. His name is Simon Hill, and he just wrote a book called The Proof is in the Plants, How Science Shows a Plant-Based Diet Could Save Your Life and the Planet. He's the creator of Plant Proof Podcast, and he's going to join us now. <laughs> you guys, this is like literally the best Thank thing so ever. We've got, we've got the clap track. You got the yes, clap track. I heard that. The live studio, I'm in so, studio audience. I'm so happy to be here and happy we could do this in person. Oh, me too. I'm so excited. So, I have many questions for you, but part of what I love about doing this show is to be able to actually learn about people and people's stories and their journey to how they got here. But before we do that, um, what part of Australia are you from? I live in Bondi, which is in Sydney. It's in S- Sydney, I yeah. guess. So it's a beach side kind of suburb in Sydney. <sighs> beach, beach living. Do you surf? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. And we were just saying it's a, a very, very similar climate in, in Sydney to LA. So yeah. uh, it kind of feels a little bit like home here. Oh, nice. Do you go surf here? I haven't yet, but yeah, it's it's definitely on the cards. <laughs> I have always wanted to surf in Australia and I just have always been too afraid. Yeah, you know, why of the sharks? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> like come on. Of course. Yeah, they're there, but you know, for the for the number of people that are in the water every day, it's the risk is pretty low. Do you go in thinking like this shark is gonna get somebody else before they get me? Mm. When you go with a lot of people? You just don't think uh, about it. You know, I guess being honest, you you tend to go out when there are a lot of other people. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's not something you think about unless you're out there right. and it's just you. Yeah. And then, you know, it, yeah, it can, it can, yeah. that thought can run through your mind. Uh, well, I have a little, well, with Australian in particular, because um, Tori and I, my, my partner, we've been there uh, a couple of times and we actually went to Cairns. Mm-hmm. And we went for the purpose of, well, I was teaching and we went for the purpose of uh, diving the Great Barrier Reef. And, you know, I had all these visions of doing these really incredible things. And then one of my friends, dear, dear close friends, uh, is also from Sydney and she met us up there. So the three of us were hanging out, but she kept telling us all these horrific stories about the Crocs, the mm-hmm. salties. Mm-hmm. And I just got so petrified. Like I would just, I, and it was also jelly season. Yeah. So this beautiful, pristine ocean, we couldn't go in. There was this little, 
I call it the the kitty playpen, right? It's it's like a net. Mm-hmm. There's a very specific area, and that's the only place you can actually go swim. Yeah, and it's it was just agonizing. Tell us about yeah, this. Australia, Tell the audience Australia, what I'm I guess, has a lot of incredible nature, but also there are some there are some wild, dangerous <laughs> anim- animals out there, and um, saltwater crocodiles are, are are one of those, and there are lots of you know poisonous venomous snakes as well and uh but you know to be honest i think i think a lot of that gets overhyped yeah um you know in general it's a it's a pretty safe country yeah if you have your wits about you and you're with you know people that know the area then you you tend to be you know pretty covered yeah well i think that she was hyper vigilant mm. which for me i'm always a hyper vigilant knowing where I grew up, you know, growing up in East LA during this really tumultuous time. So anything fear, anything mm-hmm. to do with fear, I feel like I'm an expert. Mm-hmm. So anytime I feel a little bit of that fear, I, I get alerted. Okay. Be, you have to be hyper aware mm-hmm. of all of the wildlife. Yeah. So, but it was fun. I mean, I love, I love Australia so much and um, yeah, but it was interesting to think about the sharks. It took me to this memory it's it, i mean it's 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 not uncommon like my my part oh my, my, my partner tanya she 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 will not swim in deep water oh really and that is a fear of sharks you know even though the the reality is the chances of being in the water and coming near a shark are extremely low and you're far more likely to be involved in a car accident yeah um you know certainly people do have that fear yeah <laughs> and uh i you know i i understand why our yeah. our idea of sharks and you know how horrific shark attacks are can you know can make it seem you know like it is it's it's far more likely to occur than it actually is yeah um and so sometimes we can build that up in our mind <laughs> yeah no it's true you know i i and i love sharks i i'm a big shark week discovery channel person and in fact i think we can really learn a lot from sharks uh i don't know if you've heard this before but it's one of my favorite ways of changing your perspective a shark in a in a fish tank can grow up to eight inches but in the ocean can grow up to eight feet or more and you will so a shark will never outgrow its environment and the same is true about us Mm-hmm. Right. So if we think about it from the perspective of our own growth or our own fear, we're only, you know, going to be allowed to grow yeah, to our own. Be limited. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. That being said, I, I'd love to just hear about what prompted you to get on this path. I mean, you're um, a nutritionist and a, uh, I always, physiotherapist. physiotherapist. Yeah. I always have a hard time yeah, saying that word. Yeah. And so what, how did that, how did that occur? Uh, so I guess always since I was a little kid, I've always had a real passion for science and I've always had a deep appreciation for how science can help us make sense of the world and help us make better decisions, which then ultimately lead to a better quality of life, better experience. Um, my dad is uh, a professor and so studying deep science like under a microscope. Wow, that's uh, so neat. You know, in, in vitro or, um, you know, just, just deep mechanistic science, looking at how things look, zoomed right in. And he specializes in looking at how 
uh, arteries function and dysfunction and, and what happens when you develop type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And so ever since I was, you know, a little, little kid, three, four years old, I would come home or hop in the car and there'd be piles and piles of scientific studies printed out and they were always highlighted. And of course, I had no idea what, what was actually, you know, uh, being written about, but still I could see that they were very important to my dad and they were part of his work and he would, you know, over time explain to me the role that science plays in, in society and how we, we have hypotheses and we have intuition and science is a way of, of uh, the scientific method allows you to test those yeah. and to reduce uncertainty and to better understand the world and, and move closer to some form of scientific truth. And I always thought that was pretty cool that you could have this intuition or a hypothesis and then there's a way to go and test it. Right. Um, and, and so I always knew that science was going to be something that I wanted to explore. It just, I was, you know, very passionate about it and, and curious to, to, to sort of understand the world. And when I was 15, uh, there was a, I guess, a very pivotal moment in my life. I saw for the first time what loss of health looks like. And I think up until that point in time, being a 15 year old and just being in my own bubble and I had never experienced someone dying or someone losing their health, I kind of just took it for granted. Mm. And on this day in particular, it was my dad and I, and we were driving through an area in, uh, in Melbourne and the, in the country part of Victoria, so outskirts of Melbourne where I grew up. And uh, we would go out you know, uh, many weekends and explore the, the sort of wine region called the Yarra Valley. And uh, we would stop in at different wineries and dad would often choose the small ones because you could get to speak to the winemaker. And when you speak directly to the winemaker, you could feel their passion and the yeah. inspiration, you know, you could feel their love for what they were doing. And, and so I think there was a bit of a lesson in that. Um, so it was more about that and spending time with dad than actually drinking the wine. Um, but that was fun as well. <laughs> and uh, on this one particular day, we'd spent the, the day out uh, at a few wineries and then we were driving back home to, to have dinner and it was like dusk time and um, dad started to feel some pain in his chest as we were driving home and I could tell that he was uncomfortable and I asked him if everything was okay and he, he said, you know, it's, it's not something to worry about. He sort of downplayed it, um, denial. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we, we arrived home and, and cooked dinner. And I remember checking in again and he said that, you know, there was still some discomfort, but everything was okay. And so we had dinner and, and I headed off to bed and around an hour or so later, I woke to some noise and, uh, thought I better go and check on, on, on his status and went out. And by this time it was like very evident to me that, uh, you know, he was in a bad way and he could no longer deny it. He was, uh, pale. He was out of breath. Uh, he was actually, he called, um, triple zero, which is like the nine one one number. So he, he knew very well what was happening and fear had set set in. It was the first time that I'd seen, my dad, uh, 
you know, in this very vulnerable position. Mm. And so obviously quite frightening, um, you know, hours earlier, everything's completely okay. And then very quickly there's this change in, in health status. Uh, and so uh, they, on the other end of the line, the lady asked if anyone else was there to help describe the situation and uh, that was me. And so I explained what was happening and we were actually quite remote. So we had a, a place in the country and that's where we were staying. And my mother and brother were in the city. So I explained to, to the operator, uh, you know, what his status was and, and the symptoms. And they said, look, based on, on where you are in the nearest hospital, uh, we need to send a helicopter. And they did. And the helicopter came, you know, super wow. quickly. Uh, and they rushed in and scooped my dad up off the ground and put him on a stretcher and connected him to oxygen and taking um, his vital signs and uh, said, look, we need to get him to the hospital really quickly. You can't fit in the helicopter, but you can come trail in an ambulance on the road. Uh, and so all of that was happening at, at, you know, like a million miles an hour. And uh, I got into the ambulance and dad went off in the helicopter. And by that time I, I called my mother and said, you better come to the hospital uh, with my brother, James. And uh, that was a long, long car ride to the hospital. Wow. <laughs> um, and we got there and uh, we waited and then the doctor came out and, and said, you know, uh, your dad has had a severe heart attack and we've saved his life. Um, he was only 41. Wow. So very young and he had no clinical diagnosis. He was not taking any medications, was not reliant on the healthcare system. Mm. Um, and so he was very lucky. He got a second chance at life and that was what we were most you know, grateful for. And, and that was what we were concerned about then and there, you know, more so than why did this happen? Right. Um, so the next day though, we did have a meeting and, and of course, um, you know, pretty routine. Once the patient's recovered, there can be a bit of a family meeting, what happened um, and where to from here, what's the prognosis. Yeah. And so we did that with the cardiologist and the cardiologist said, look, I've taken your dad's history and my grandfather, so his dad had also had a heart attack. His was in his 60s, so, um, but not uncommon mm -hmm. and uh, for, for cardiovascular disease to kind of run in families. And that was what the cardiologist said to my brother and I. My brother was 18 and I was 15. And he said, you know, you guys are you know, young adults or nearly young adults and uh, you, you will need to be aware of this and get screened as you get older and cardiovascular disease runs in, in families. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't fault that. I think that's great advice. It does run in families, but the conversation kind of ended there. Mm. And that in many ways is a bit disempowering because, you know, ultimately my brother and I thought this is uh, determined by genetics solely. Um, and it wasn't, you know, many years later that I realized, you know, to a large degree, these chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease that we have very much normalized in our society that yeah. other societies don't experience at these rates. Um, you know, these diseases that are robbing people of quality of life, robbing people of years of life, uh, largely they are running in families because families adopt the same lifestyles. And so, um, you know, when I, when I was uncovering that information, which was about 10 years later when I was studying 
my master's in nutrition science, the narrative flipped. Yeah. You know, no longer was it this disempowering feeling. It was a very empowering feeling. And, and really when you get into the research, it's quite clear that while genetics can predispose you to certain chronic diseases for sure, um, ultimately, and there's lots of good identical twin studies looking at this that have teased out nature versus nurture. Oh, really? Um, ultimately, your genes probably have about 20%, say, in your chronic yeah chronic disease fate, whereas your environment and how you navigate your life controls about 80%, except for very rare genetic conditions where, you know, it's very unfortunate no matter how someone lives and, and, and what, you know, if they eat healthier exercise, the genes will determine their outcome. But for most people, you have a lot more say than your genes do. Wow. Yeah, that is so powerful. I mean, it's, it's such an inspiring uh, story, you know, to be able to hear that your dad survived this and that you were able to use it as a catalyst to begin your own journey and start your own path. I mean, I think that for us, especially I can actually just speak for myself. Um, it was a very, uh, cultural way of nourishment and we're Hispanic. And so there was a lot, that was our love language. We were fed five, 10 meals a day constantly. And for us, it was very much rooted in this is, this is, um, you know, it's a gift for you. We have to nourish you because they didn't come from a place where they maybe could find food or could eat. And so anytime we went to family or relatives homes to eat food, we were told to eat everything, every single thing off of the plate to eat everything because even to the point of discomfort, because these people didn't have the means to be feeding so many people. So the least you could do is to just, the food was just for you to eat it and to enjoy it. There was no nourishment information or no talk about how this is going to affect you or the importance of it. So it was very much a learned behavior right so more means better yeah and you know that that's today there's a uh, double burden of malnutrition and it's it's very sad that in developing countries it's not uncommon for the same person to have been undernourished when they were a kid and there was food scarcity and then as the country's been developing they they become obese and overnourished yeah. and it's largely a result of the shift in the food environment has provided calories, which is great, but it's most of it's coming from ultra processed foods, yes. which are driving overconsumption. These are hyper palatable foods. And so sadly you see childhood stunting and then in that same person they end up with obesity and perhaps type two diabetes. Yeah. I know that you talk about the food industry a lot and it's a topic that I wish we talked about more here on the show because even though there's more awareness around the foods and, and GMOs and all these additives into our, our food, I still feel like it's not something that's really talked about, you know, widely. Right. Yeah. And you know, the most, most people's food choices are dictated by the food environment. It's how the food environment shows up and so I think this requires, you know, the system's broken in many ways. If you look at America, 
the average person consumes 60% of their calories from ultra processed foods. And in America, uh, sorry, in Australia, it's around 50%. And in the UK, it's around 50%. And this is largely a result of an underregulated market. The, the, the transnational food companies, they have a free run. And, you know, yes, they're providing food for communities, but you have to ask, is there priority profits or health? And so when the food environment is showing up in the way it is, and, and it's not just the food on the shelf, it's also the marketing. You know, there is a lot of marketing towards very impressionable parts of society, young kids, teenagers. And once you, once you hook children with these foods, hyper palatable foods, it's very hard for nature to compete. So then even if the parents understand what a healthy diet is, let's say a family, you know, realizes they need to change their diet. It's, it's not as simply as just bringing home broccoli and beans, you know, where, where you're, you're, you're dealing with a food addiction. And, and so, um, you know, when you're, I, I completely understand that the challenges, it's, it's so much more challenging just than, you know, the price of food, the price is important. Um, but convenience, we're talking about flavor, we're talking about education with regards to preparing food. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that we need to work on to, to improve the quality of, of the average person's diet. And, you know, I think the core of that education is really important, but the core of it is governments having the political will to say, you know what, we've been in bed with the transnational food companies for too long and we've let them lobby us and the market's been de- uh, underregulated and we're going to start to regulate it to to make sure that the healthy choice is more affordable and more convenient. Yeah. Yeah, I 100% agree with you, um, especially when it comes to uh, adding more fundage to foods like plants. Mm-hmm. I'm a mostly plant-based mm-hmm. person. I call myself, I'm a veganish, um, but I, I know the healing properties of being able to eat in a more natural way. Um, so why plant proof? Well, I mean, my view of, I guess, uh, a healthy optimal diet is that it's not necessarily defined by the labels that we come up with. Um, you know, the labels are, are a nice way to kind of describe various diets, but often that leads to to diet wars. And I think we overlook what the basic characteristics are of a health promoting diet. And I think you can get there with a number of different labels. Right. Um, And so, you know, very consistently across the research, whether you're looking at epidemiology, which is large, large studies of people that you're following over time, observational research, or you're looking at clinical intervention trials, it's a consistent theme. Diets that are low in saturated fat contain good amounts of unsaturated fats, from be it from nuts or seeds or or um, marine-based fats from fish. Um, diets that are rich in fiber contain good amount of plant protein and are low in ultra-processed foods. And so, you know that 
can can be constructed in a number of different ways, there are many variations of that theme. Yeah. It could be a very well done Mediterranean diet. Right. It could be a pescatarian diet. It could be a vegetarian diet or equally, it could be a completely plant exclusive diet. Um, and the commonality of those is that theme. And I believe that any of those themes can deliver optimal health. Um, now, why why are plants so health promoting? You know, there are a number of reasons why adding more fruits and vegetables and whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds to your diet will help improve your health. First is what are they displacing? Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah. when you add those foods to your diet, you are going to naturally be displacing ultra processed foods and you'll, you're going to be de-emphasizing animal products, which means lower intake of saturated fats, lower intake of, you know, compounds like nitrates in certain meats that can be carcinogenic. Um, and then at the same time, you're getting the added benefit of fiber. You know, fiber has incredible benefits, one of which being that it's feeding your microbiome. And we can go into that if, yes. if you want. Oh, please. Um, we love to talk about microbiome. So fiber, you're, you're, you're boosting your intake of fiber, your, uh, boosting your intake of important phytochemicals, you know, carotenoids and polyphenols. These are compounds that have anti-inflammatory, antioxidant effects. Essentially what they do in lay terms is they will drive down inflammation, drive down oxidative stress, which reduces DNA damage, which then is a, a way of decelerating aging. Of, of various tissues. So whether you're looking at the cardiovascular system or you're looking at, um, you know, the, the nervous system and brain health, um, you know, when you're consuming more plants, you're also increasing your intake of plant protein. And we see pretty consistently across the board when you are swapping calories from animal protein for plant protein, you're, you're getting better health outcomes, you know, lower risk of heart attack, stroke, lower risk of certain types of cancer, et cetera. So the, you know, overall adding more plants, you're getting that twofold benefit yeah. through some of the stuff you're reducing your exposure to and through some of the stuff that you're increasing your exposure to. Yeah. Does anybody else struggle with a little bit of brain fog sometimes while you're working, either in the morning or in the afternoon? For me, sometimes if I want to take something that's a little bit lighter on the caffeine, that's not going to give me that instant surge up or instant drop down, I take Magic Mind. Magic Mind has all natural ingredients like adaptogens that help decrease stress, nootropics that help boost your blood flow and cognition, matcha that helps keep you focused. Magic Mind is not like any other energy drink. It has minimal caffeine, all which comes from matcha tea. Anytime I have an extra long to-do list, you know I'm gonna be drinking my Magic Mind because it's the only thing that allows me to focus and feel more successful conquering all of my to-dos, which just means I have extra time to listen to podcasts or hang out with my family. One of the coolest things about Magic Mind is that it helps you fight off procrastination, brain fog, fatigue, and some ADD symptoms. After three to seven days of continuous use, it's easier to get into the flow state, become more productive, and drink less coffee. And today, Magic Mind has a special offer for our listeners. Visit www.magicmind.co forward slash loved 
and use the promo code LOVED20 for 20% off. Visit www.magicmind.co forward slash loved. Enter the code LOVED20 for 20% off. A special thanks to Magic Mind for keeping us highly focused. Yeah, that's great. Let's talk about microbiome because this is a topic that I've been researching more over the last year. And I, I've not actually had anybody on the show come talk about it. So the microbiome is nuts. It is, it is just, it is wild. And uh, I'd say, you know, probably some of the most exciting research looking at human health has been in the microbiome over the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, to give you a bit of an idea as to what's going on in your gut, there's 38 trillion microbes, right? Uh, you actually have more microbial cells than you do have human cells. What? If you were to take the bacteria out of your body and you were to weigh it, it would weigh the same amount as the standard brick. That's that's how much bacteria has colonized, is living inside your body. Uh, more, There are more bacteria in your gut than there are stars in the Milky Way. This is what we're talking about here. Oh, my God. Okay. And, uh, you know, very consistently through the research, the... Uh, the the sign of of a healthy microbiome is diversity. So imagine the way I like to think about this is I feel like I should be taking notes. Every every each one of us has about five hundred to a thousand species of bacteria. So okay. you can think about species as like a dog is a species, a cat is a species. But then within those species, there are a number of different breeds of dogs, right? Right. So that's that's kind of how this works. Five hundred to a thousand different species. Now, the reason why diversity is important, and I'll use an analogy here, um, think about society. You know, when we have better representation and better diversity in our society, we have a more fruitful society, you know, that is more enjoyable and everyone has bringing, is bringing different skills to the table, right? But if we had a society where, let's say, uh, there was more troublemakers who were breaking the law, perhaps, um, I don't know, robbing people or committing various crimes, then society might be a little less productive and people might feel unsafe. So when we're talking about the diversity of the microbiome and that being healthy, we're talking about elevation of the number of bacteria that are health promoting and relative suppression of the bacteria that are pathogenic or inflammatory. That's yeah. what diversity means. Um, and so, you know, if you think about a football team, for example, on a given day, if, if a few of those players, the, the good, the good players are not playing that well, some of the other players can, can pick up the, the take up the slack and you can still win the game. That's what's what happens when you have a more diverse microbiome, you're, you're more likely to be promoting health and you're creating a more resilient ecosystem. Now, the problem is today we're seeing a lot of people with various conditions lose the diversity in their microbiome. And in many ways, it's a micro um, sort of mirror of what's happening on a macro level. We're losing biodiversity on the outside world as well at the, at the same time. Um, and it's probably not a coincidence there are, there are clear links between the two. Um, but what if you look at someone with cardiovascular disease or um, you know, even depression or um, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's or IBS or inflammatory bowel disease, 
a commonality is a loss of diversity in the microbiome. So what happens when you lose diversity? What happens is as you're losing that diversity, you're losing the bacteria that will reward you. So how do our bacteria reward us? This is where food comes in. There are components in our diet that are absorbed in our small intestine, you know, vitamins and, and minerals and fats and proteins, et cetera, and carbohydrates. But then there are components in our diet that travel through the small intestine and they are essentially food for your microbiome. They go, they travel down and reach your large intestine where most of that bacteria lives. And people will have heard of fiber. Yeah. So fiber has essentially two main components, soluble and insoluble. And the, the soluble fiber is prebiotic. And that's a word that people may have heard before. Prebiotic essentially means it is an indigestible part of your uh, in food that travels to the large intestine, acts as food for those good bacteria. And when, those, when the bacteria feed on prebiotics, they produce metabolites. These are uh, compounds and there are thousands of them, but probably the most like spoken about. microbiome poop. Exactly. Okay. So almost exactly. So you feed these guys, they poop, and there are a thousand, thousands of these different types of poop, right? Okay. But all of these exert an effect on the body. Now, the most studied and understood are called short-chain fatty acids, of which butyrate is, is probably the most studied. And what butyrate does... So as you promote diversity and you're consuming lots of fiber-rich foods uh, and you, so therefore you're providing that, the, the, the prebiotic sort of substrate that these bacteria like to feed on and keeping them happy, they're producing short-chain fatty acids. Butyrate then directly acts to keep your, your gut lining intact. You probably have heard of leaky gut. Yes. So what happens is as, as you lose diversity, the tight junctions which hold the endothelial cells that line the gut start to separate. And as they separate, then inflammatory endotoxins can, can essentially go from your, your gut into your bloodstream, which provokes an immune response and inflammation. So as we're boosting these short-chain fatty acids by, by eating a diet that is diverse, has a diverse range of plants and, and lots of this prebiotic fiber, we are helping to keep the, the lining of the gut intact. We're reducing leakage of these compounds and we're driving inflammation down. And as you do that, that's what you, you see a reduction in, in things like colorectal cancer. You, you see, going back to what I said earlier, driving inflammation down means less oxidative stress, means you're decelerating that aging process. Yeah, which we really enjoy. Wow, that was so... I want to do a round of applause for that. Like that was, that was so, I've never had anybody explain it in a way that I understood it like this. So thank you so much. That was very, very well-rounded, very articulate. And um, yeah, I, I totally understand that. And now my question, while you were talking about the, the prebiotic, I I've heard, I've researched a little bit on probiotics. Mm -hmm. So where does the probiotics, what's the importance of a probiotic? That's a great question. So uh, I should, by definition, a prebiotic means that essentially it's food for the bacteria. Mm -hmm. The bacteria then they produces metabolites and you get a healthy effect 
right? You have to, for it to be prebiotic by definition, those metabolites have to exert a healthful effect. Okay. Um, Now a probiotic, so a probiotic is speaking actually to live bacteria, right? Mm -hmm. And the definition is live bacteria that exert a healthy effect on the host being being the human. And usually when people are thinking about probiotics, you think about supplements, but you also think about fermented foods, right? Like oh, right. Uh, kombucha yeah. and or sauerkraut, kimchi. kimchi or cottage cheese or, you know, yogurt, for example. Mm-hmm. These are all fermented foods that if you look at the packet, they often say, you know, lactobacillus or life cultures mm-hmm. or something yeah. like that. Um, and there was a really interesting study out of Stanford University about three months ago on this. So we, uh, I'll walk you through that. Um, but the thing that I think is most important for people to understand with probiotic supplements is that when you take a probiotic and it contains billions of bacteria, um, we know that those bacteria do not colonize. That means that if you take that supplement, those bacteria that you're introducing, they don't land and stick in your gut and stay there forever, right? It's a transient effect. That doesn't mean they can't have a beneficial effect. They can exert a beneficial effect as they're passing through. But then if you were to stop taking that product, you haven't introduced species that are going to stay there and, and, mm. and take up residence. Right. right? Um, so I think overall uh, probiotics, the, the hype has probably exceeded that surpassed the science. However, um, the reason I say that is our, our microbiomes are very different. Everyone's a microbiome is like a unique fingerprint, right? So to think that you could just have a probiotic on the market that's going to work for everyone is a little far-fetched. So currently the, the approach with probiotics is very much a trial and error. So mm-hmm. if you can afford it and you can take it, you know, perhaps it, it, it will work for you because it's filling you know, it's, it's, it's filling a sort of weak spot for you, but then for the next person, it might not. So you, you, you have to approach them with a bit of a trial and error kind of approach currently. Um, there are some very, very specific issue, um, type of, um, circumstances where probiotics can be very useful, like, um, you know, um, travel related diarrhea, for example. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of say just widespread. Everyone should just be going out and taking a a probiotic because you're going to get way more better, like better bang for your buck by focusing on the prebiotics. Prebiotics are like the fertilizer. They will absolutely feed the healthy bacteria that you have and that will see them proliferate and you'll get more of those short chain fatty acids. And those are the ones that'll stay. Exactly. They're already living in there, but you just need to feed them to make them proliferate and outnumber the pathogenic bacteria and they will automatically reward you by producing those metabolites. Yeah. So sometimes I like people to, to just think about uh, priorities. You know, there's no, yeah. if you haven't, if you're not consuming a really fiber rich diet and you're thinking about probiotics, take a step back, go to the diet first, try and introduce a, a wide diverse range of fiber rich foods, lots of different color. And then, you know, down the track, perhaps look at uh, a probiotic if you're not getting the results that mm, you're getting. Interesting. Okay. Um, this study out of Stanford looked at fermented foods versus increasing fiber in the diet. And I think this is really, really interesting. So Chris Gardner is a professor there that he probably conducts some of the best studies around the world, very tightly controlled, um, very eloquently designed studies. And he looked at, he had, he split the, the group into two groups 
One increased their fiber from 20 to 40 grams and the other added six serves of fermented foods, which seems like quite a lot of fermented foods in a day. A cup of yogurt was two serves. A kombucha was two serves. Okay. Uh, so not, not, not that crazy. You, you, you could probably achieve that intake. Um, and what they found was really interesting. So they were looking at which, which uh, diet would promote an increase in the diversity of microbiome because we know that that is linked to good gut health and, and systemic health. And then also they were, they were monitoring inflammation and looking at inflammatory markers. And they looked at over 200 inflammatory markers. I should say these were healthy adults without any sort of chronic disease. And what they found was in the fermented group across the board, microbiome diversity increased and they drove inflammation down, you know, which is incredible. So a big tick for, for fermented foods. If wow. you're not eating them, then definitely introduce them. Um, as I said before, if you drive down inflammation, you're driving down that cellular aging process. Mm -hmm. uh, so make friends with kimchi and uh. sauerkraut. Now in the, in the fiber group, it was very, it, the results were different and a little bit at odds with what they predicted. So on an average, increasing fiber didn't improve microbiome diversity. Wow. And it didn't drive inflammation down. But then they went back and looked at individuals because there were some responders and some non-responders. And they saw the people that responded to increasing fiber had a nice diverse range of bacteria at baseline. The people who had a very disrupted microbiome, perhaps they have been pounding antibiotics for year, years, eating a lot of ultra-processed foods and starving the microbiome. They, they struggled with increasing their fiber. And in fact, increasing their fiber increased inflammation. Wow. So a uh, few takeaways from this, and, and I think some, some further research from this group will help tease this out, is that people can respond differently to increasing fiber. And in that study, they went from 20 grams to 40 overnight. I don't recommend that because it's, it is like throwing an atomic bomb in there. And if your microbiome, is a little on the weaker side, it's not that diverse, mm. then it could drive inflammation up. And you, oh, wow. and you may think, oh, my body's not suited to adding more plants to my diet. But I hear this a lot when people say, oh, my stomach, I was too bloated. I can't do yeah. plant-based. And, and so I think this is helping explain what's going on there. It's mm -hmm. like if you went to the gym and you've been used to picking up 10 kilogram weights and all of a sudden you went in and picked up 40, you know, you're, you're, you're going to struggle and it's going to be painful. Uh, so I think going low and slow with dialing up fiber for most people is going to be a better approach. Mm -hmm. and, and interestingly, and this is a hypothesis, but if you're really struggling, then it might be better to add some fermented foods in first, mm. increase the diversity, and then look at increasing your, your fiber. And that's uh, something that they're, they're looking to test Wow. You know, going forward. And can you test your own microbiome? How do you know yeah. what kind, if you need to in incorporate more of these foods or not? You can. And there are companies that are getting more sophisticated and, and uh, more reliable in terms of recommendations. Mm -hmm. There's one called Zoe, okay. which uh, from my research is probably 
the most reliable. And so that will provide feedback based on your microbiome, will provide feedback as to what specific foods you should oh, you wow. should look at, um, which I think is cool. I'm not sure that it's been perfected yet, mm-hmm. but I think over time it's becoming more intelligent because they're getting more information from people. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, um, technology like that, will be very, very helpful. Yeah. Um, I'd say for now, if people don't have access to that, then uh, you, you need to listen to your body. Yeah. You really need to listen to your body. If you're increasing the plant diversity in your diet and you're noticing that perhaps you are feeling bloated or feeling like you have less energy, then it might be that you're dialing it up too quickly. And you might need to, to back it off and play the long game. You know, think about over over months rather than over days. What is your thinking or opinion on, um, you talked about yogurt, like dairy versus non-dairy. Because for me, I, I, lo- I used to love eating Greek yogurt and granola and some berries. That was always my way of, I'm like, oh, I'm putting some good probiotics in there. And, and then I found out that I was lactose. Mm -hmm. So I changed to, uh, you know, coconut yogurt and, but for some reason it, it does the opposite effect for me. So sometimes I feel really bloated when I have more plant-based things, Mm -hmm. uh, which is really interesting, but I'd love to hear your opinion on that. So I think the most interesting thing about dairy is that you see one side saying it's poisonous and then you see the other side saying you know, everyone should be doubling down on dairy. And Mm -hmm. it's a lot more nuanced than that. I mean, let's just think about dairy, how uh, heterogeneous the the group of dairy is. You have cheese, you have milk, you have uh, butter, you have fermented yogurts. So there's all these different types of dairy, firstly, Mm -hmm. um, yet we like to group them all together. Um, You have high fat, you have low fat, then you have, well, what exposure level? How much are we talking about? We have compared to what? Yeah. Uh, oh, and, wow. and if you look at uh, headlines, none of that context is ever considered, right? right? It's either good or bad. And you see this with all foods, whether it's vegetable oils or, um, you know, meat or, or dairy, it's always good or bad. And there's very little room for a nuanced discussion. Um, I feel like part, that's the theme of 2020. Yeah. Part of that is a lack of understanding of the science, but also that from a clickbait perspective right. and an algorithm perspective, it's it's far better to just have an absolute message because you'll appeal to everyone whose identity mm. you're reinforcing and you'll send everyone else mad. And then you get engagement and, of course, that's, that's clicks and revenue. Right. Um, but where do I sit on dairy? Okay, so... Um, Overall, I would say that firstly, it's not an essential food group so that if people were, were, didn't want to consume dairy, there are other options. Uh, and you see the Health Canada guidelines have now removed it as an essential food group and it's, it's an option, but there certainly are other options. And if you're removing it, you, you would want to make sure you're getting sufficient calcium and protein from other sources. And now plant-based milks, which is what most people would be swapping milk with, are providing that option for people, which is great. Um, I I think that in the context of an overall healthy dietary pattern that's that's very plant predominant, 
where most calories are coming from plants, um, which is consistent with that theme that I described. This is where we see people have less cardiovascular disease. They have less risk of type 2 diabetes. We see less risk of developing fatty liver disease, which 25% of the population have, less risk of um, neurodegenerative diseases. Um, in the context of that type of dietary pattern, a little bit of, of dairy I, I have no problem with, particularly if it's uh, a fermented dairy, like a, a, some, some type of yogurt. Um, however, if we're talking about in the context of a typical Western diet that's very rich in saturated fat, for example, then a very strong argument could be made for reducing the consumption of dairy and dairy fats and instead eating more nuts and seeds and, and uh, plant foods. So it, it does depend on what is the context of the person's right. diet that you're, you're looking at. And there was an article last week that was quite frustrating to look at because it, it again, just took an absolute position. Um, and it really depends what you're comparing it to. So there are a lot of studies, mm. for example, that show dairy is super health promoting, but they compare dairy fat to the fat in red meat. And so the, the compared to what is always a very interesting question when mm -hmm. you're looking at a, a, a study. Um, but I guess unanimously we see that if you're swapping dairy fat for plant fats, you actually reduce risk of cardiovascular disease and um, total mortality, which means premature death. So, um, you know, that's my position is that if it's in the context of a plant predominant diet, I don't see a big issue. If someone's lactose intolerant, um, then, you know, they, they probably either need to avoid it or find their threshold. Mm -hmm. So sometimes lactose intolerance, it's a spectrum. Some, yeah. Sometimes you could, for example, have half a cup of milk and it would be okay, but going above that would trigger bloating. Yeah. So people need to navigate that. Yeah. Um, probably the number one reason to de-emphasize dairy, I'd say would be the environmental impact. Right. Um, other than red meat, it requires the most amount of land and emits the most amount of greenhouse gases. So if someone has the means to consider the ecological footprint of their diet, I think that's that's the, actually the strongest argument to, to reduce or avoid it. Yeah. So, and what is the, I don't know whether this is nuanced or not, but the health benefits of something being full fat versus non non fat. Again, for the typical person uh, in this country or in Australia where saturated fat intake is above the recommendations, the low fat option would be better. However, I'll add a caveat to that. In 1980, when the low fat regulations came out, the idea was science was showing that if you're if you're reducing saturated fat and instead eating polyunsaturated fats and, you know, from nuts and seeds and fish, you'll get a promotion of health. Now what happened? Food, the food industry just reformulated and put low fat on the front of everything. And people didn't do that. They didn't, no one follows the guidelines. They instead ate a lot of ultra processed foods. Yeah. So if you're choosing low, low fat milk, then I'm certainly not recommending the ones that are the chocolate and strawberry and loaded with <laughs> refined sugars. Right. I'm talking about the low fat milk that is plain, it's unsweetened. Um, and, and that's going to be a better option for most people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I can keep you here forever. <laughs> just asking you questions because as we're talking, I'm, I'm, uh, just thinking of other, maybe I could just ask you for myself. Sorry, guys, I'm going to ask him my own personal questions. I'll share with you guys after the fact, but um, 
I'm so, I'm so grateful that you were able to do this. There's so many questions I still want to ask you, but we will have to save it for the next time. Sure. Please come back yes. and do this again with us. Uh, the name of the book is called The Proof is in the Plants, How Science Shows a Plant-Based Diet, diet Could Save Your Life and the Planet. And we will, um, for the people that are watching this, we will link all of the, uh, all of the places you can buy the book and where to follow Simon. Is there anything else you'd like to share? No, thank you so much. I do much. have one final question. Yes. Sorry. Okay. No, but go ahead. Okay. Is there I, anything else? No, thank you. It's, uh, it's been an honor. I've really enjoyed it. And you ask great questions. So oh, thank very, you. Very, very, very happy to, to be here and, and hopefully have added some value and, cleared up some confusion. Oh, you added <laughs> so much value. I'm going to have to personally go back and listen to this entire podcast because I learned so much. And um, I think it's a, an important conversation to have, especially with regard to the planet. I think that that is uh, a conversation that, especially being in LA, being in a drought, having all these wildfires and, you know, ha the other half of the country is flooding it, with everything that's happening in the planet. I, I feel that this we don't realize how much our choices affect that. And I think that it's a conversation that I personally would love to have more of on the show. So thank Let you. Let me tell you one fact on, on uh, planetary health before we go, because I learned this statistic today. Oh, please. So you, you've probably heard that we are on the verge of the sixth mass extinction, which, so there's been five mass extinctions to date. And so species extinction is a normal part of life. It, it happens over millions of years and then new life comes. Um, however, the, the rate of species extinction right now is very alarming. And so if you look at usually a mass extinction is 75% of species wiped out over 2 million years, right? That's usually what happens. We are currently on, on a trajectory of wiping out all species, 75% of species within 35,000 years. And compared to the mass extinction that wiped out dinosaurs 65 million years ago, we are seeing species extinction at a rate of 165 times faster. And that is absolutely a result of the way that we're living our lives. Wow. That is uh, horrifying. <laughs> and 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 I'm laughing not because I I think it's funny. I'm laughing because I it boggles my mind that we still aren't making the choices to save. We have one home, just like our body. It's like this is the one home you have. That's it. You don't get to switch bodies if you don't treat this one well. We don't get to pick up and I mean they're trying to move to another planet, mm -hmm. but we have this one. So why can't we make the choices that we need to to protect her? Mm -hmm. So Thank you for that. That is a very important point and um, one that I think we need to continue to discuss. So the final question uh, is with regard to this podcast and why mm -hmm. I created the, the this platform. Um, the whole idea is that we are we are radically loved by God, Source, Spirit, mm -hmm. Baby Buddha, Baby Krishna, whatever higher power of your understanding. The whole idea is that we are radically loved and supported. Uh, that the universe works for us and not against us. And so the final question to you is, how do you feel radically loved? That's a great question. Uh, I, feel, I feel radically loved by my connections with the people around me. And, you know, I've learned 
over the years that the the most important thing is the the friendships and, and the connections we have with our families and how we nurture them and I'm very grateful that I have amazing relationships with my parents uh, and and my friends and you know I just feel loved through those connections um, and I also feel loved through through nature and and spending time in nature which you know is a significant driver for everything that I'm doing today I think um, it's so important that we we do respect nature and, and our host and um, you know while that statistic that I threw out there uh, can be frightening um, I'm, I'm very optimistic that it is it is love it is compassion that is ultimately going to be what's going to guide us out of here and if you look at climate change i think it's just a big mirror and if we're going to solve it it comes back to love and compassion for each other um and perhaps that's the the greatest learning of all thank you wow so powerful thank you so much simon we hope that you join us again we're so grateful we really appreciate you and thank you for all the work that you've done and will continue to do and we can all save the planet together thank you for having me this episode i am so excited to continue to do this please share this with your friends email us message us on instagram at rosie acosta or on twitter at rosie acosta subscribe on itunes write a review we love doing this so please help us continue to keep this podcast going thanks for listening